appreciate our band so much. Uh, they put in a lot of extra hours other than the time that you get to see them being ready to uh, lead you guys in worship. And I can't, I can't thank them enough for how much they put into you guys. It's pretty astounding. It's my gum. It's going in here. It's going to be folded up. Somebody's going to find that later. It's going to be gross. I'm going to sit it here. That's disgusting. Sorry. Um, yeah. So if you got your Bible, go to the book of Judges. We're doing one-year Bible stuff, right? You guys hanging in there? A little bit behind? Yeah. I'm a little bit behind. That's okay. So um, we've, we finished Joshua. We're heading to Judges. We're finishing up Luke. We're heading into John. It's, it's, it's good. We're getting close to halfway. Um, this is usually a part where a lot of people drop out. The people who didn't drop out like the first three weeks, this is the other part where people drop out. And if you make it past this one, you're going to make it. So if you're still doing it, I believe in you. Uh, if you're not, dude, I'm not like judging you or whatever. I'm not mad at you. It's hard. It really is. Um, so you can pick up and you can join in whenever you want to. I'm still going. Uh, so you can do that with me throughout the rest of the year. So we're in Judges chapter 6 and Judges chapter 7. Um, if you know anything about the book of Judges, it's the story of Israel. It's repeated, uh, repeated falling away from God. And the reason the book of Judges is so convicting to me is because I've had periods in my life, like a lot of you have periods in your life, where, where you're very, very close to God. And then, then just like something happens, right? Maybe it was, maybe you were at a camp or, or whatever, and, and you just, you and God were just clicking. It was like he was physically standing there right there with you. And, and you, in your heart, maybe you even thought, I, I remember thinking this at times, man, I hope this never, this never changes. I hope I never grow apart from God ever again. And, and maybe you prayed a prayer like, God, I'm going to be right there with you from now on because this moment right here is just absolutely incredible and I don't ever want it to change. And then time passes and sin creeps in and distance grows. And you find yourself very, very far from the place you actually wanted to be, the place that you were made to be. And that's the story of Judges, this repeated this cycle of getting very, very close to God and then getting very, very distant and God having to come and rescue Israel once again and draw them back to himself. And then they're really good for a minute and then, then they fall away. And then God has to come get them and, and then bring them back, rescue them again. And it's just this over and over and it's just so tiresome. Because that's my story. That over and over again, God has to come back and draw me back to himself. Remind me that he's rescued. This is one of those cycles, and it just happens to be the story of, uh, of a man named Gideon. It's one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. Um, so in, in 6.1, it starts talking about how Israel this time started falling away from God, and then uh, this time God, you know, he lets them go. Their, their sin separates them, and so God lets them go the way they want to go, and then uh, a bunch of people called the Midianites. You don't need to know that necessarily. Uh, but the nation of Midian, they come and they take over Israel. And it's bad. It's really bad. And, and um, there's, there's no food. There's no place for people. I mean, it, it's, it's just rough. And so a period of time, like seven years, passes. And, and finally Israel remembers, hey, wasn't, wasn't life better when we had a close relationship with God? Wasn't, it, wasn't life better when we were walking with God rather than being conquered by this other thing and not having any food and anything that we need? Wasn't God better? And they cry out to God, um, and they, they, they ask, they beg of God to come back and to rescue them. And God hears their cry, and in, in verse 6, it, it basically reminds us that, that God has been faithful to fulfill his promises. 
That God has made us some promises. He made Israel some promises. And God is faithful to, to hold up his end of the bargain even when we fall short. So if you maybe you're in a, in a, in a moment, in a cycle in your life when um, you've fallen short on your end of the bargain. And maybe there's some distance between you and God. Maybe things aren't exactly the way that in an ideal world you'd want them to be because there's, there's just been some junk. It's been a long semester. Some stuff's happened. And there's distance. God has promised. God has promised a lot of things, but primarily for us, principally, he's promised us salvation and forgiveness and purity before him in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. For Israel, he had, he had promised to make them a great nation and to protect them and to make them a chosen people for himself. So if, if God's promises can hold true for, for these, in this entire nation, then I, I think God can hold up a promise for you. So if you've got distance, I want you to reflect on, the, on, on God being faithful to his promise throughout this story. Cool? All right. So they call out to, they call out to the Lord. And God shows up. He shows up at a man named Gideon's doorstep. It's actually his dad's doorstep. Gideon's at dad's house, and he's uh, helping harvest some wheat. And the Midianites are crazy, and they steal food from everybody. So he's, uh, he's threshing wheat in a wine press because it's like a, a wine press is like a big like, brick or a rock cylinder, like, kind of like a well. I can envision like a bigger well, and they, they press the, the grapes to make wine or whatever in that big well-shaped thing. Well, if you get in that thing, nobody can see you. So if you, if you shake the wheat out inside the thing, then nobody can see you. So the Midianites can't come steal your wheat, right? So Gideon's in, he's in the big you know, hole in the ground, and he's, he's shaking the wheat out so they can eat, have something to eat and try to hide it from the bad people. He's just hanging out at Dad's house, helping you know, harvest wheat. That's not exactly what I would consider reckless living. That's not what I would consider like doing anything like, crazy out on faith. It's just kind of doing normal life. And I think that's where a lot of us find ourselves most days. We're not doing anything nuts for God. We're just kind of surviving. We're just trying to make sure we got enough food. We're just trying to do what we need to do to make sure that we're going to be okay for that day. And that's exactly what Gideon's doing. He's doing exactly what we do normal days. He's just living life, doing what he has to get, do to get by. Also, I've been talking to a lot of you guys about school right now. Survival is, is the best word to describe what you are doing currently, right? You are surviving. You're not, you're not like pushing back the darkness of the world or anything. You're just, dude, I got 15 things to do and I'm in AP English and I haven't done my project that was, I was supposed to have started and worked on the entire semester because I'm dumb. And, and now, now I've got to do my entire project and this other thing. And it's just nuts right now, right? Your life's crazy. You're surviving. Gideon's surviving. He's just getting by. And an angel of the Lord literally like appears under this tree, which is freaky. And comes over and starts talking to Gideon. And in, in verse 12, uh, the, the angel of the Lord says to, to Gideon, um, the Lord is with you. That's like his introduction. Hey, the Lord's with you. And I love how Gideon responds in 13. Look at, look at verse 13 with me in, of Judges chapter 6. He basically says, no, he's not. In 13 he says, but sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? We're all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, didn't he bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and he's put us into the hand of Midian. An angel of the Lord appears under a tree, tells Gideon that the Lord is with him. And he says, no, he's not. Because if there's actually a God who's supposed to be worth something, why has all this happened? You ever felt like that? We know the feeling. What Gideon's saying is that, man, 
I'm, I've heard about God. I may have even experienced him in the past, but th- he's, he feels so distant right now that I'm not even sure he's there. We know that feeling. We know each, each one of us in the room, whether you're a Christian or not, has known um, what sin is like, sin that, that puts up barriers between us and God. And especially if you're a Christian in the room, man, we, um, you know how this plays out when you try to spend time in prayer and, and all of the things that have disappointed you about yourself recently flood your thoughts and you can't really get very far in prayer or time in God's word or whatever. Or maybe you walk into greenhouse and you're so guilty from what's been going on in your life that you wish your mom hadn't made you come that night. And maybe that's where some of us go for periods of time when we're, we're kind of absent from this place. We're like, hey, I've got some junk in my life and I don't want to have to go be there and hear about this God who has dreams or commands on my life. I don't want to do that. Sin creates distance. Israel's sin created distance. And Gideon is saying, no, the Lord's not with me. There's distance there. There's no, there's, he's not here. The angel kind of ignores him. And it says in 14 that the, that the Lord turned to him. Like gave him his full attention, like zeroed in on Gideon. He turned to him and he said, listen, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? The Lord turns toward Gideon and he's like, shut up, I'm here. <laughs> You're going. And you, threshing floor, sissy boy, hanging out in daddy's wine press, trying to get some food to eat, surviving, you need to go save Israel from this huge oppressive nation. Fix it. Have I not sent you? Go. God calls a Gideon to do something more than survive. He calls Gideon to pursue him, to step out on faith, to step out of his apathy, to step out of that distance and act. There's no like, there's no like rewarming up process. Sometimes in my life, when I feel distant from God, I want to like ease back in or something. And like, man, there's probably like, I should, you know, maybe start out with like just prayer stuff. And then, then I'll, I'll kind of reintroduce Bible study or something. I'm going to ease myself back into God. And no, he goes, and God's not like that. Gideon, he comes to Gideon and says, hey, you're going to go from feeling like I'm not even, I might not even exist to now you're going to go save an entire nation from another nation because I said so. It's like zero to 100 miles an hour instantly. So Gideon questions him because that's what we do of God, right? God tells us to do things. We're like, I don't know, maybe not. So in 15, Gideon says, but Lord, that's a terrible way to begin a sentence talking to God. But, but God, that's, that's not going to end well. He says, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in, in Manasseh, and I'm the, I'm the least in my family. Basically, I mean nothing. I have no power. I have no skills. I have no know-how. I don't know how to, like, wage a war. I don't know anything. I'm just some random dude trying to, trying to cut, just trying to survive here. Is that you, man? It's, it's so if God came to you and asked you to do something just absolutely nuts beyond what you could imagine, if God, if God wanted to change the world with you, what would you say? I think you would immediately go to your weaknesses. If I, if I, if I walked up to you on a normal day and I said, hey man, I, I really believe that God wants to change the world with you. I think you would immediately meet me with skepticism. Because you don't have, you don't have the skill set or you don't have the whatever. Or I'm not good talking to people or I'm a little bit shy or I've had some mistakes in the past or I've had whatever. And, and God basically says, dude, I don't care. 
God called Gideon to, to step out, do more than survive, to act in faith. Gideon protests. He's, he's skeptical of, of his own abilities. And God says, listen, I'm not concerned about your abilities. In 16, the Lord answered him, I'll be with you. You'll take care of the Midianites. God's not concerned about Gideon's weaknesses. He's not concerned about your weaknesses. He's not concerned about your shortcomings. He's just concerned about your willingness to follow through, to step out in faith and act upon what he's called you to do. He hasn't asked you to protest. He hasn't asked you to explain to him why you're not the right fit. He hasn't asked you to explain why that kid that you felt that tug on your heart that you probably need to talk to, he hasn't asked you to explain to him why that kid's weird and you don't want to. He hasn't asked your opinion about um, uh, inviting people to whatever. He hasn't, he hasn't asked my opinion about um, whether I should do what I do and try to proclaim the gospel to teenagers every week. He hasn't asked me if I think that's a great idea. It's what he called me to do, and I do it. And in God's power and in God's strength, it's effective. Man, if we're talking about weaknesses and, and God not choosing the right people, um, I remember when God, uh, when I really felt like God was calling me into student ministry. And I, I, before that, you, you guys know I talked about wanting to do uh, med school stuff. And um, I was super shy. And uh, so, like, in, in, in this space, I'd be in that corner. Like, I'd be in the back corner as far away from any of you as I could get. And we would do activities, and there's, like, some of you that jump up and down and, like, wave your hand in the air that you really want to do the activity and be on stage. I would probably just remain seated so that whoever was on stage couldn't see me. If anybody ever um, made me do a group project, I, was, I would work so hard. I would do anything I had to do not to be the one to present it. I'd do as much work as they needed me to do, and I'd do the work well just so I didn't have to get up in front of the class and say a word. When I was in high school, I didn't invite a single friend to our Wednesday night thing the entire time I was in student ministry. Too scared. I was completely ineffective, and I was probably the worst instrument I can imagine to do what it is I do. And God said, hey, I'm not really concerned about your weaknesses. I'm just concerned about you doing what I call you to do. And he said exactly what he said to Gideon, basically to me, in 16, where he said, the Lord answered him, I'm going to be with you. I'll take care of the rest. So Gideon is called to go and save Israel. He protests, and God sends him anyway. <laughs> and then in 25, it says, uh, it begins the verse this way. It says, that same night. So God calls Gideon to do something. Gideon protests, and God says, no, it's going to be okay. You're going to go anyway. And Gideon doesn't really get a chance much to respond. And then it says, that very same night, God calls him to actually act. I think for sometimes some of us students, we, we think that, um, that God is, is going to call us to do something, uh, to live radically for his name and for his glory, maybe in the future. Like maybe when I'm in college, I'm supposed to go on summer missions or something. Or, or maybe when I'm an adult, I'm going to like try to, you know, share the gospel with somebody like 15 years from now or something. And we have this, this future expectation that God will use us. We don't have a present expectation. It's not a present reality for you. And you almost think that, that because I'm a teenager, God isn't going to use me to do anything. God doesn't have any expectation on me because I'm 15 years old. I can't even drive a car yet. 
Surely God's not asking me to do something significant like earth changing, eternity shaping. God's not asking me to do that because that's crazy. Old people do that. People that have, that get, have to stand on stage and preach, that's their job. That's not my job. I'm 15, 16, 18 years old. I'm not even in college yet. That night, 625, that night, God called Gideon to, to do a thing, and it says, that night, the Lord said to him, I want you to go, and I want you to take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that's, that's seven years old, to so go get a bull. And then I want you to tear down your, your dad's altar to Baal. This is a fault, like an, another God, their altars were a big deal. I want you to go tear down your dad's altar to a false God. That sounds like a good plan. Um, and then I want you to cut down the Asherah pole beside it. That's another altar to a different God. Good. We're just going to just vandalize dad's stuff. And then I want you to build a, an altar to the Lord on top, of, uh, on top of the ruins, basically, with the Asherah pole. And then I want you to sacrifice a bull on top of it. Okay? And uh, we'll see how they like that. So his dad has these two, these two altars to these false gods, and, and God calls Gideon. He's threshing wheat in his daddy's wine press, right? Hanging out at daddy's house, surviving. And now he's supposed to go um, rip down dad's altars and basically, uh, basically desecrate them as, as well as possible. <laughs> Not only am I going to tear it down, I'm going to sacrifice... Uh, I'm going to sacrifice to another guy that you don't believe in anymore, and I'm just going to do that in your front lawn. So get ready, Daddy. And Gideon understands that this is a terrible idea, um, so he does it at night. He gets a couple of guys to help him, and he waits, until, he waits until night because he's scared, and then he does exactly what God called him to do. Do you get why he was scared? Do you get why? Do you get why he didn't want to do this? I, I, I don't have time to like illuminate like the whole cultural reference thing about altars and Asherah and stuff, but do you get it? Basically, it's, it's, it's very, very confrontational. And on top of that, it's public. And it's not going to be popular. It's probably going to be a little bit dangerous. He's surrounded by people who worship this, these other gods, and he's going to go out and he's going to flaunt in their face that, that his god's better. I don't ever think that um, acts of faith, like stepping out in faith and the way God is going to call you to is going to be uh, easy or popular. So Gideon's a little bit scared. He does it at night, whatever. People freak out. And uh, so the only reason that Gideon doesn't get killed right then and there the next morning is because his dad steps in. That they, his dad, who these were his altars, his dad steps in and he stops the crowds and he says, listen, if Baal's really a God, Baal's going to be, take, be able to take care of himself. Let, if Baal's a God, let Baal defend himself. And they let Gideon live for the moment. But what they took that to mean is God, if, God, if, if Baal's going to defend himself, he's going to defend himself through us. So they go call all their buddies, and the whole like, army of, of Midian descends on Gideon. All of a sudden, now, now God has called Gideon to basically like, vandalize some altar stuff, and now an army of like 30,000 people marches on Gideon, a guy. This reminds me of that chick who, who uh, tweeted the airline Remember her? Not a good idea, sweetie, right? Have you never heard about this? This little girl, she's like 14, isn't that right? 14-year-old girl, like, tweets some fake thing about being a terrorist or something. Yeah, like, I think like American Airlines. 
And they tweeted back, uh, hey, we're going to give your IP address to the cops, so deuces. And um, now they go and arrest her. So 14-year-old terrorist girl gets arrested. She's a little white chick somewhere. Um, she gets blown up because she did something stupid. And I, I can just imagine Gideon feeling like, hey, this is escalating quickly. I just tore down dad's altar, and uh, now there's an army. <laughs> I don't know how to fight an army. I'm just a dude. And then God starts acting and God brings up his army and, and basically the entire nation of Israel who's under this oppression sends all their folks and they just like start following Gideon because that's who God's put in charge and, and God puts it on their heart. Hey, there's this guy at Gideon and you've got to go help him. And so 22,000 people of Israel descend as well. You've got the thousands of Midians and you've got the thousands of Israelites all in the same place. And there's this kid who was threshing floor in his daddy's wine press a few days before in charge of 22,000 of na- uh, people of Israel's army in a matter of days. God wants to do ridiculous stuff through you if you'll be faithful enough to do what he says. God has dreams bigger than what you could ever imagine. Dreams so big that it would terrify you to know what God wants to accomplish through you if you'd let him. If you'd get out of survival mode and step out in faith. That's what happens, man. In 36 through 40, Gideon double checks with God because there's two armies on his doorstep. And he has this signs thing with God where there's a fleece and he wants to see if, if to make sure actually God's God. He like triple checks him um, that if, you know, time will lay this fleece on the ground, God, and if you make it, if you let dew fall only on the fleece and not on the grass, then okay, great. And that happened. And, and the next night he says, okay, don't get mad at me, but let's just try this one more time. I'm not really sure you're God yet, even though there's 55,000 people on my doorstep. Um, if I'm going to lay the fleece down again, and then this time I want you to do the opposite. I want you to do to fall on the ground and not on the fleece. And then it happens. And then Gideon's finally ready to go. So it's in, in chapter seven, you've got these thousands of people on the doorstep. You've got God's promises to sustain Israel. You've got God's promises to use people like you and me to accomplish crazy things. And all of it's about to come to a head right here. And in chapter 7, verse 1, God starts bringing out his plan. Not, not, a, not a plan that Gideon comes up with. This is God's plan because like Proverbs fourteen twelve says, there's a way that seems right to you and me, but that plan leads to death. There's, there's a way that seems right to you and me. There's, there's a way that, that seems right for me to relate to students. There's, there's a way that seems right for you to live your life. And God says, hey, I've got a better way. So God's better way starts showing up in one through eight. And basically what he does, he does something completely counterintuitive. He sets up, he intentionally sets up impossible odds for God's team. Intentionally sets up impossible odds. Look at chapter seven, verse two. Chapter 7, verse 2 says, The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. Because Israel might boast against me that their own strength has saved it. So God says to to Gideon, Hey, there's too many people here. You've got 22,000 soldiers. And if you guys march out against the 30 or whatever, and you guys win, then you'll probably just think that you're just awesome and you just saved yourselves. And that's not cool with me. So um, here's what we're going to do. You're going to go out and you're going to announce to 22,000 people, Hey, if any of you are scared, go home. It's cool. We're not going to be mad at you. It's just, it's fine. Go home. If I'm, if I'm going to, dude, you ever had, do you like know how they do war like back then? There's like, 
clubs and junk. It's not pretty. Like, there's not drones, okay? You're not, like, incinerated. You just get stabbed by a guy with a blunt stick, and then you bleed to death. I'm scared. I'm out. 22,000 guys. 12,000 of them go home. There's only 10,000 left. Now it's 30 to 10. That's, that's steep odds. That means the 10 have to beat, each, each one of the 10,000 guys have to beat three of those people. That's not a good plan, God. It's not a good plan. And God says, hey, that's, that's still too many. That's still too many. You're, that's still theoretically possible. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go down to this uh, like stream thing, and I just want you to watch how everybody's going to drink water, and whoever I tell you to kick out, you kick them out. Deal? And he's like, deal, let's do this. They go down there, and God tells them to, you know, they're drinking water. He has these two different ways that, supposed to, that they get to choose from, I guess, or whatever. 300, 300 people get chosen. Out of 22,000, 300 make the cut. God sends the rest of them home. So now it's 30,000 people against 300. You've got God's promises to sustain Israel. God's promises to use people like you and me to do ridiculously crazy things. And now God's like stacking the deck against himself to prove how ridiculously awesome he is. God calls us to do reckless things according to his plan for his glory. God calls us to do reckless things things according to his plan and for his glory. God sets the, the stack the deck against himself. 30,000 to 300. He tells um, Gideon, Gideon's kind of freaking out, and, uh, and, and God tells Gideon, hey, just, I just want you to sneak down to the camp, and if you're still too, much, if you're too scared to do that, take somebody with you. You guys just sneak down there and listen to what they're saying. They sneak into the camp and they can hear two guys talking. One of them's had a dream and he's telling his, his little you know, tent buddy about this dream that there was this loaf of bread that rolled into the camp and it, it hit his tent and it like blew his tent up. Freaky, right? He's telling his buddy, hey, I just dreamed that a loaf of bread rolled down that hill and blew my tent up. So that's weird. And the guy's like, dude, that's Gideon. How does he know Gideon? Gideon's like a kid, like threshing wheat. He's like, that's Gideon. He's going to get us, right? And then people are freaking out. They're, nothing's happened yet, and, and they're, they're terrified. 30,000 people are terrified because they think the masses of Israel are about to just descend on them, and there's 300 guys up there, like, eating Snickers, you know, doing whatever they do. There's 300 dudes up on the hill. Like, they could just decimate them instantly. It's, it's nighttime, and Gideon's like, wow, they're scared, weird. And he goes back up the hill, and God's like, here, here's the plan. Um, why don't you take a torch and a pot? Why don't you put your torch inside your pot? All right? And then just go stand in a circle around the, around the city. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I got my torch and my pot. Oh, and a trumpet. Everybody gets a trumpet. There's 300 trumpets. So I got a, I got a, I got a bugle, and I got a torch, and I got a pot. How many hands do you have? I have two hands, and I have a bugle and a torch with a pot on top. And there's only 300 of me, and there's a camp of 30,000 people, and I'm just going to stand next to it, see what happens. And Gideon just says, hey, just watch and just do whatever I do. I don't even know what I'm doing over there. If I'm just one of the 300 guys, I'm just standing here like an idiot, just like watching, trying to figure out which guy is Gideon. <laughs> and standing here. And what Gideon does, he, uh, he says, when I yell go, blow your trumpet, smash your pot, and light your torch, and just start yelling. 
It's the plan. It's what God told me. So uh, <laughs> here we go. Remember that part where I told you you're scared you can leave? You can't leave anymore. You're stuck. So they blow the trumpets. Or whatever. I don't know how trumpets work. You blow some trumpets. You smash some pots. And there's a noise and there's a pot. And the pots are breaking. And, and so parts, pots start breaking all around the thing. And it's like it's loud. They're slamming pots in the ground. That sounds cool. And then they light all these torches. And all these torches light up. Because with normal armies, there's one guy with a torch with like a thousand guys. He's like the regiment captain. He's the guy that leads the charge. There's the guy with the torch. So you follow your commander who has a torch. No one else gets a torch because you're not cool enough. Only I get the torch. And you thousand guys follow me. So if there's 300 guys and they're supposed to have a thousand guys with them, it's 300,000 guys. So they just make a bunch of noise and light a bunch of torches. Midianites freak the junk out and just start, <laughs> they start stabbing each other and like run off. Like they literally like attack each other trying to get out of the camp faster. They just like stampede each other. Guys are just like getting stabbed for no reason at all. And they just runs off. God's like, eh. told you. So then they let the other 22,000 guys chase them down. They all get killed. So that's fun. But um, so God stacks these incredible odds against himself. And then he shows up and he pulls through. So when I was reading this story, I was thinking about that. Man, man, how many times, how many times do I miss experiencing God's glory because I back down from impossible odds? How many times do, do, do I not just realize what God is setting up for himself to get this enormous amount of glory out of? How many times do I see impossible odds? And I'm like, hey, I'm not strong enough to do that. I, I, I got to bail. I can't, I can't do this. I can't make a stand in my friend group because I'm just going to get tossed out. Like if, if, I, if, if I stand up for my faith at my school, I'm just going to get ostracized. I'm not doing that. Those odds are stacked way too high. I'm not doing it. I'm not going to talk to my parents about Jesus. Are you kidding me? What if they like ground me or put my junk out in a box in the street or something? I don't know, man. Like I, that's, that's big odds. I'm not doing that. I wonder how many times we miss experiencing the fullness of God's glory because we're just too scared to stand up when he's setting the deck, stacking the deck for himself. You guys know the story of Mount Zion, right? Like our story. About impossible, about impossible odds, man. Greenhouse started with like 12 kids. There's 107 of you, and it's a low night. That doesn't count the 60 junior high kids over there. You hit a high of like 220, and our fall numbers are always bigger. There were 220 of you last fall. We started with 12. And not like 50 years ago or something. Like eight years ago, there were, there were 12 in a portable. They had a fan because our portables don't have air conditioning that's like worth anything. So there's a fan. And Rob was in there with a fan, and he would sit on a stool because Rob does that, and he'd point the fan at himself. So if you're one of the 12, you're just out of luck. Rob's sitting there with his long, like, bro hair, like, blowing. And just, that's how Greenhouse started. And God began to move, and, and students began to catch a vision of, of sharing with their friends and, and drawing their friends into a closer relationship with Jesus. And, and so people started inviting people. And people started coming to hear that there was this, there's this God who loved them and that had given his son to die on the cross for them. And they began to enter into a relationship with Jesus in droves. And those, those people began to invite their friends, and then those people began to invite those, their friends, and God began to change hundreds and hundreds of lives. 
I don't know how many, there's probably a few thousand kids now that have come through our, our student ministry in the last eight years. And God did it with 12 people. For a lot of you, man, you, don't, you didn't grow up in Mount Zion. You didn't know this place existed. You didn't know what Greenhouse was until somebody else asked you to come. And then you've asked people to come with you, and then, and then stuff's happened, and then maybe you've jumped over and you've tried a Sunday school class, and you've met some other people, and you've kind of gotten a small group Bible study. Or, I don't know, man, but I do know that two people in, in, in here have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior just this year. And there were like seven, eight last year. I know that I baptized 12 people in a lake last summer. I know that God's done some incredible things beyond whatever I could, I could have ever imagined for Mount Zion because 12 kids caught a vision of the gospel and they did something with it. How many times do we miss experiencing the fullness of the glory of God because we're too scared to step up when the odds are stacked against you? I know that living for Christ isn't easy. I understand that, that it's much easier to survive and it's much easier just to, just to say, man, I've, I've got four finals, um, or I've got whatever, or I've got a job where I've got to go, like, fry some fries at some place. I don't, I don't have time to really invest spiritually right now because I've got to go make seven bucks an hour to pay for gas in my F-350 or whatever it is you do. I know that it's, it's much more pressing and that the plan seems better to us to survive to not take the time to really to live recklessly, to pursue what God may be calling you to do, to never really step out because it's a little scary and because you don't really trust him. I get that it's easier to survive, and I would just say um, that that's not the life that you were created to live. That you can live that life, dude. There's, there's adults all around you that, you that you know that if you really take stock of the way that they live, they're still just surviving. They've never really seen God show up or show out in their lives because they're too busy just making it through. Last week we talked about living recklessly in the name of Christ. And this week we're building on it. So I'm going to invite you again, just like I did last week. Man, if, if God is calling you to do something, I would dare you to, I would dare you to do it. If God would, if God would call you to... Um, Maybe not participate in something that would free you up to make a more of an eternal impact. Do it. Do it even if it makes people mad. Do it if you get yelled at by a coach or something. I don't care. Do it. See what he does. See what God does with your faithfulness. Because in this story, God took a guy who was threshing wheat, uh, just trying to survive, just trying to get enough food to eat, and used him to rescue a nation in a couple of days. I don't know what he can do with you. You're the, you're, it's in, incredible. Our, our generation is the most over-resourced, over-talented, over-knowledgeable group of people that have ever walked God's earth, and we're still the most, somehow we're still the most apathetic, uh, careful people. I don't want to get to the end of my life and, and stand before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who... who Send his son to die on a cross for me and, 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 and ask him what he thought. Hey, God, how, how do you think I did? And him say, you're real careful and you survived well. Way to go. I want to live recklessly 
inside of God's plan for his glory, just to see what he can accomplish through me. Not out of my strength or my abilities, but in spite of my weaknesses and my failures. I want to see God show himself to be God through me. And he'll do the same for you if you let him. So there's just two things, man. Uh, I know that's, that's, that's real big, that's real long-term maybe, um, but there's two things that just for today. I, I, would just, I want to ask you first to be faithful in doing what you know he's asked of you. You know that God has asked of you to spend time uh, getting to know him through his word. You know that God's asked for you to spend time with him uh, in conversation and prayer. You know that he's asked you to um, understand what you believe and to ask good questions of other folks. You know that he's asked you to share what you know. Be faithful in what God's called you to do now. You don't, wait, don't wait for him to like put an army at your doorstep. Be faithful in what he's called you to do right now. And the second, be ready to act. When something big or crazy or scary shows up, you've got to be braced for it. You've got to be ready to act. You can't be sitting there on the sideline. You've got to be ready. Do what God's called you to do first. Be ready for him to do something more. Let me pray for you. Our band's coming up, and they're going to leave us in one last song. We're going to be super late, and it's going to be cool. All right? Father, um, you're the God of great things. You're not the God of careful. You're not the God of small. You're not the God of insignificant. You're the God who has put us here to bring as much honor and glory and name, fame to your name as possible. And God, so many times I think that we, we just kind of naturally look out at, at the, the situations that you've placed us in, and it looks hard and it looks scary, so we just hunker down and, and survive. We just wait for it all to be over with. And we consider ourselves successful if we make it through another school year or another school day without encountering any confrontation or anything difficult. When really what I think we're doing is just sacrificing an opportunity for impact. Yeah, it'll be dangerous. Yeah, it'll be unpopular. It'll be hard. But you have called us to do those type things. Not out of our recklessness, not out of, just out of stupidity, but God, to live reckless lives inside of your will for your glory. Help us to be men and women who have the guts to do that. Help us be men and women who are unwilling to grow up and live lives of survival, never making an impact for you. God, just give us a dissatisfaction with that. That life is not good enough. Your son's name, I pray. Amen.